Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. You can access episodes, companion articles, research notes and links, as well as information about our contributors and supporters at deck4podcast.com. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello and thanks for listening. Oliver Crocker is undoubtedly one of Britain's leading and most respected authors, historians, podcasters and publishers on classic British television, whose work is valued and appreciated as much by the creators as by the fans. Now he's put together something really special for us this episode, as we remember actor and playwright Frank Williams, who passed away June 26, 2022, aged 90. Frank Williams is remembered with enormous fondness by generations of fans, myself included, as Timothy Farthing, the perpetually exasperated vicar in the BBC's Dad's Army, on television, radio, on stage, and in two feature films separated by almost half a century. Victoria Wood once described Dad's Army as the most affectionately regarded comedy program in the history of television, and Frank Williams made his own unique contribution to that universal love for the program, the characters, and the actors who brought them to life. I beg your pardon, Mr. Maddering, this is the church's hall. It's been requisitioned. Not this room. This room is still church property. Even so, we cannot have all this noise. Mr. Maddering, if you can do your blood-curdling bandit practice in the middle of my responses, I can do my jubilati in the middle of your inquiry. <laughs> Frank Williams was very supportive of Oliver's early career in television and podcasting. They collaborated on projects including a short film adaptation of Frank Williams' own play, Murder by Appointment, and Oliver's biography. Dad's Army and Beyond, the Frank Williams story, which had the honour of a BFI National Film Theatre screening and can now be seen on YouTube and is thoroughly recommended. So Oliver joins us to share some personal memories about this incredibly talented, generous and exceedingly kind gentleman, and he's also gifted us some very special audio from his own archive of Frank Williams himself reminiscing about the adventures and misadventures of a working actor from his earliest theatre and film roles to pioneering and undoubtedly terrifying live-to-air television and, of course, Dad's Army. So thank you, Oliver, for producing and presenting this segment for us, and I'll be back towards the end of the episode with more, including some final thoughts and a couple of favourite Frank Williams moments. Hi, George. Hi, listeners to the Deck 4 podcast. I hope you're all well. It's Oliver Crocker here. For those of you who've listened to my previous two-part podcast on Deck 4, you immediately have my sympathies for um, <laughs> listening to me on that. I think I drank about five coffees on that. So um, sorry for how hyper I was. One of the people I spoke about with huge fondness, affection and uh, for undying love and gratitude is the late Frank Williams. Uh, at the time, Frank was still with us and... Uh, Frank sadly passed away oh, just a few weeks before what would have been his 91st birthday. My wife, Tess, and I uh, were lucky to attend a delayed 90th birthday theatre show. It would, in fact, be Frank's last on-stage appearance, although he continued to make public appearances. It had been delayed and postponed, obviously, because of the pandemic, and Frank sat on stage and was interviewed by Chris Gidney, who was his friend and biographer. And uh, they toured the country together doing shows and talks. They had a lot of success doing this. And uh, I attended a couple of them. Just, you know, hearing Frank come alive on stage was always oh, just a thrill. And I was very much aware seeing the show. It, it was the first time I had seen him since the lockdown had lifted although we had spoken on the phone and i was aware that adris 
catching up with Frank. You know, he, he wasn't as mobile as uh, he once had been. An example of that, Frank had macular degeneration. When I came to London in 2008 for my first sort of um, stint of work experience in television, Frank said, well, I'll take you for a tour around London. He, he knew I that I was um, an amateur when it came to London and that I really didn't know the city very well at all. And so Frank took me for a guided tour of London, of Leicester Square, of the South Bank. We went to Joe Allen's for lunch, looked at Big Ben. You know, it was this joyous day. That was my introduction as a young man to central London. And Frank, bless him, his macular degeneration meant he couldn't see London. It was memory that took him around London. When Frank would bump into someone in central London, he'd have to say, now you have to forgive me, I can't see. And then they'd explain who they were and then he'd be delighted to catch up. And he loved giving you a hug. And when he gave you a hug, he would do his best to look you up and down so he could see and, you know, he, he, he could see you in, in enough of a way where, you know, he knew if I'd had a shave or not or if I needed a haircut, you know. Not that he ever, you know, he was always uh, very, <laughs> he was always very complimentary about everyone. Thinking back to Frank on that day and sort of traveling forward, well, 13 years later, you know, and, and just the passage of time, which happens to us all, but... Uh, you know, Frank still insisted on walking onto the stage and he, he had help. And there was a, a collection of legends, Sue Pollard, Jeffrey Holland, Judy Buxton, Michael Knowles. They all went up and uh, each shared memories of working with Frank. And in the end, everyone who had been guests went up and sang We'll Meet Again, which was very moving. And then uh, a very select few of us were were invited to um, a sort of post-show lunch at Joe Allen's. And that was um, really a lovely celebration of, of Frank with those who are, you know, very close to him. The next time I saw Frank, uh, sadly, was the last time I saw him, just a few weeks before he passed. And to hark back to Frank's amazing knowledge of London, as I say, that day he took me around London, it was all from memory. And I was driving and uh, I popped in to see Frank and Ronnie on my way home. And Frank said, when you leave, don't turn left, turn right. And then take the first left down and he named a street. He said, that will take you away from the traffic and it's much quicker. And he was absolutely right. He was spot on. Whilst age, obviously, physically had caught up with Frank, his brain was so sharp and there were some stories in that Leicester Square show that I hadn't heard and bear in mind I lived with Frank and Ronnie for 13 months which I think I talked about in the uh, Deck 4 podcast I did and uh, some of the happiest times of my life memories I shall treasure forever and I was laughing out loud at some of these stories that Frank shared in particular, filming a series of cat commercials. <laughs> I think it was called Deli Cat. Frank did in the 80s. And uh, he was telling some very funny stories about these cats. You know, not not, not really behaving for, 
for the takeover director wanting some really, really specific stuff from uh, Frank and the cat. I'm delighted George wanted to pay tribute to Frank since his passing. And uh, he sent me a few questions, which I shall do my best to answer. Dad's army remains popular and is always finding new generations of fans. Although that represents only a part of Frank Williams's work, how do you see his overall artistic legacy? I think Dad's Army does define Frank's career, which is a shame because there was much more to Frank than just Dad's Army, although it was the happiest part of his career, which, which he said in many interviews, and he loved his time with Dad's Army and his association with Dad's Army. He was a much more versatile actor than most people would realise. I saw a short film he did once called Few. It was like a Tales of the Unexpected short film with Frank as this seemingly kindly gentleman who wants, <laughs> wants to cook someone's thumb. He's looking for the right person who is willing to part with their thumb so that he can cook it and eat it. Very dark, very uh, surreal and sinister. And that was a great performance by Frank. He could play evil very well. And it's a shame that I've, I think for a long time there was a misconception about all of the Perry and Croft stalwarts typecasting, basically. There were some champions of Frank. The casting director, Tracy Gillum, was a fan of Frank's. When I lived with Frank, I know he had an audition for what I believe was the last Jonathan Creek special. Tracy saw him for she also cast him in two BBC sitcom pilots which I have seen one was called George and Bernard Shaw and it had Robert Lindsay and the late great Richard Griffith as um, a gay couple who enter a dog grooming contest and Frank played one of the members of this this local village committee called Gerald and he had a a comedy moustache because the character was described as looking like a walrus. And so Frank went and did this pilot for a sitcom, which was directed by Ed Bye, who, you know, directed Bottom and Red Dwarf and a comedy legend in his own right, Ruby Wax's husband. And I always think it's a shame that pilots like that just sit on you know, in an archive or a shelf somewhere at the BBC and never see the light of day because it only takes one exec to go, now nah, that's not for me. And all that, you know, work and time that's gone into it and performances. And I think nowadays these things are of historical interest, in my humble opinion. Another one Frank did the next year, I think it was called Beautiful Day. It was uh, Sarah Hadland and Darren Boyd as a married couple and it had a great supporting cast of Judy Parfit, Jeff Rawl, and Frank Williams. Sarah Hadland's character was a, a care home nurse, and uh, Frank played her patient, Mr. Stubbs, who was very, very irritable, and Frank was great in it. And it's a shame that that never went to a series, because it was actually a very, very funny pilot. Another champion of Frank, was Ruth Jones, co-creator of Gavin and Stacey. And she was a champion of Frank. And she was always trying to get Frank into one of her projects. 
um, for a time, she was the, the Tesco's commercial mum. You know, they had a family series of idents and she wanted Frank to play her dad and got him in an audition. He didn't, he didn't get the part. She also wanted to cast him in Gavin and Stacey and uh, Frank did audition, but he would have been required to barn dance and uh, Frank's mobility wasn't the best, especially with the macular degeneration. It didn't give him the confidence to barn dance. So that didn't work out, but eventually she was successful and Ruth got Frank a part in Stella. Technically, he played two different roles, but Ruth bent the rules. So he did a cameo in a Christmas special as a gentleman called Stanley in a supermarket scene. And then she got Frank back, kind of rewrote a character to make it Stanley. But this time he was Lord Stanley and he was the biological father of one of the other characters. And Frank said, well, in the first episode, I was this kindly gentleman, and now I'm this nasty lord. And Ruth Jones said, he has mood swings. (laughs) Ruth treated Frank like royalty. He had a chair with his name on it, you know. Treated him like a legend he undoubtedly was, and a wonderful actor. I wish that his legacy of Dad's Army had allowed him to do more work. When I met Frank, he hadn't done a television for 13 years. I met Frank in 2006, and he hadn't done a television since Yerang Lord finished, which is a terrible shame. He did become very involved in the General Synod, the Church of England, but he'd already been doing that. You know, he was halfway through his 15-year term then, so I, you know, and he was still doing pantomime and the odd play. But, um, yeah, television work dried up. But Frank was very loyal to an agent that got him no work. And he, he, I think he kind of felt sorry for this guy. He used to ring up when I lived there and say, Hi, Frank. It's whatever his name was. Uh, just so you know, but from me off, I'm not ringing about a job. And he'd ring him, ring up Frank and tell him sort of all of his problems. But Frank was an amazing listener. Another of George's questions was, What did you learn professionally and personally through your friendship with Frank Williams? One of that, one of the answers to that is Frank was an amazing listener. He was very, very kind and very, very interested in other people and an amazing memory. He would always ask after my parents. He would ask after my brother. He would ask after my cat. He would ask after my wife. He would ask after actors that we had collaborated with on short films. Any mutual acquaintance, he was genuinely interested in how they were getting on. So he was a a real people person. And when he passed away, the Dad's Army Appreciation Society published um, a tribute magazine to Frank. Uh, Frank was their president after the late Bill Pertwee. Frank touched so many people's lives and someone in their tribute said he made me feel special. And I think that is a gift that Frank had as a human being. He made anyone who he met feel special because he he treated everyone as equals. You know, he, he didn't make, he never acted the star. I saw him asked for autographs many a time and he always obliged and he had a gag. Oh, you couldn't possibly know Dad's Army. You're far too young, you know. And obviously he knew that the repeats were on and he never took the repeats for granted. They did provide him with a pension, but he never took that for granted. He always expected the repeat run to be the last but dad's army's still a smash hit on bbc2 still bringing in the audiences 
Frank was very kind. He wasn't a judgmental person. I never saw him be rude to people. He didn't like it when there were certain people he knew who either didn't get along and he didn't like the fact that two people he cared about didn't get along. And he was always trying to see a, a resolution. Yeah, Frank didn't hold a grudge. Obviously, as an actor, he was frustrated when um, the phone didn't ring. You know, he didn't lose sleep over it. But if you asked him, he'd say, yeah, I'd like to do that part because he's an actor. It's natural. But he also had a, a very long career. I, I once was <laughs> I was once in his living room and they had talking pictures on. This was after I lived there. It was the time I visited Frank and Ronnie. And Ronnie said, that's you, Frank. And it was a, a, a film and it was a courtroom and it was a quick, it was the very first scene outside a courtroom. Uh, Frank had a couple of lines and that, that was it. And, and Frank and Ronnie had an argument that it was, <laughs> that it wasn't Frank. Frank was Adam. That wasn't me. And he was, Ronnie was like, it was. I said, well, it, it actually is Frank. It is you. And then I looked it up on my phone and yeah, sure enough, it was. And Frank said, I've got no memory of doing that at all, you know, but did so much work. What else did I learn from Frank? He had drive. He was always, even in his late 80s, he always wanted to get some of his plays on. He wrote six murder plays and at least three or four other plays. And he was always keen for them to be produced. Two of them enjoyed a national tour in the uh, 1980s. Yeah, he'd have, he'd have loved his playwriting work to have had a, a more successful life. But he has so many stories about uh, <laughs> some of those productions. Yeah, I miss him. I miss him an awful lot. For 16 years, Frank Williams enhanced my life immeasurably. And, you know, I still see Ronnie. Frank and Ronnie lived together for 20 years. They met on the Dad's Army stage show. And I've, I've gone to see Ronnie several times since Frank's passed. And, uh, you know, he obviously misses him terribly because they were such a double act. And Ronnie's a wonderful man as well. So that is kind of a gift that Frank has left me, as well as the many memories of our time together. He introduced me to Ronnie. And, you know, the pair of them made... We made several short films together with Frank and Ronnie, uh, usually playing comedic parts, although in, in Tanner, Frank was a, a gangster. Just amazing, amazing times. And I miss Frank. I will see an actor and think, oh, I wonder if Frank worked with them. And... and you go to pick up the phone and realise you can't. And that's um, that's sad. But when you're lucky enough to know someone like Frank Williams, there's so many interviews out there with Frank. So anytime I think, oh, I'd love to hear Frank's voice, I can. Which leads me on to a little surprise. And George won't know this until he listens to this file. As part of my degree, I made a documentary about... Frank's life and career, which my mentor, Mervyn Cumming, directed. I researched it and produced it and edited it. We shot this in November 2006. I got a distinction for that. I remember ringing Frank to tell him and he was delighted. He was so pleased. He really encouraged everyone and celebrated their successes and was there for you in, uh, you know, in, in more frustrating times. Great support. And then in 2008... The BFI picked his documentary up as part of the 40th anniversary of Dad's Army and Frank, Ronnie and I, uh, and another much missed friend, Bernard Holly, we went down and we we premiered the documentary that the BFI NFT won. So this 
you know, huge audience. And Frank and I went down and introduced it. And that was a blast, you know. And something I did, which I had forgotten I had done until George asked me to uh, share some memories about Frank since he passed, is I had put together an extended selection of interviews that didn't make it into my documentary that I made at uni, which can be watched on YouTube. It's up there for free. But there was a a 25-minute selection of material from that interview, which was recorded in November 2006, that didn't make it into the cut. And uh, I remembered that I still had that backed up somewhere, and I have found it, and I have tidied up the audio a bit, and I am really pleased to share it with you, the listeners of the Deck 4 podcast. I can't think of a better home for it, especially with George Fairbrother, who has been such phenomenal support to me over the last few years with my endeavours with the Bill podcast and more recently a new dramatised podcast called Letter from Helvetica, which George has very kindly sponsored. Some heroes don't wear capes. They write books and make podcasts for other people to enjoy. So this is a gift from me and I'm sure Frank would have approved that this audio is shared with you now. And these are stories that Frank would have told many a time on his many talks and appearances, personal appearances. But this recording has never been shared until now. And um, and there are a few discussion points which I will briefly pop in and out of just to explain what Frank is about to talk about. And first up, from a great man himself, here are some memories of Frank's childhood from Frank growing up in Edgware, North London. So take it away, Frank, and ah, God, I I love you, I miss you, and uh, I think your legacy is that you will never be forgotten, because Dad's Army and much of your other work is always going to be enjoyed, and um, what a powerful legacy that is. Over to you, Frank. I suppose I'm something of a stick in the mud in a way. I've uh, I've lived in the North London suburb of Edgware all my life. Uh, I've only lived in two houses. The house I lived with my parents um, in Parkside Drive and the house I live in now. So th- th- that's not a great sort of adventurous mover around the planet, is it? I I had um, a magic lantern. I think my father in his younger days had given magic lantern lectures. Now, nobody will know what a magic lantern is, will they? It's a sort of uh, box which you project coloured, large coloured slides about that big onto a screen and um, I had a, a series of uh, various uh, I think I had a Cinderella's set of slides and a, a Puss in Boots set of slides and, and my father had slides of London because I think in his small uh, uh, town when he was a, boy, a young man he used to lecture on London so he had all these slides from various places in London and uh, I used to give magic lantern shows to my friends I had one of those um, eight millimeter film projectors, and I had some Mickey Mouse and uh, films, and uh, Charlie Chaplin. So, oh, lasting all of two or three minutes, you know. But they were thing, and I, I, I loved sort of giving those kind of entertainment. Um, my school days, well, very varied because during the war and things happened. I went to. First of all, I, be, I think I began at what I suppose was the local primary school, which at that time was meeting in 
uh, the church hall, in a church hall, uh, waiting, I suppose, for uh, a proper school to be built. And uh, so that's where I began. Then I went to a sort of... Well, it was a school that took girls and boys up to the age of 11 and then went on to take girls up to the age of 16, I think. But it was basically, I suppose, more for girls than boys. But I went there for a time. Uh, and uh, then I think my parents thought, well, all this feminine influence was a bit too much. So I went to a school locally in, here in Edgeware, which was uh, the reverse of that. Uh, that was took boys to an older age, but took uh, girls only when they were very young. So it's basically a boys' school there. Uh, then, what happened next? Oh, gosh, yes. Well, then, of course, the war had come by now. There was bombing around. So I think my parents decided it would be rather good to get me out of London. So I went away to boarding school, a um, place called Arding Lie in Sussex, um, where I spent uh, some... Well, looking back, I think they were very happy years. I mean, but at the time, of course, I was terribly homesick, missed home, wanted to be at home and all that. And then I left there. And no, I didn't get expelled. I can't pretend anything glamorous like that. I just left and, and I ended up at the local grammar school here. So that's my school days. I always wanted to be an actor. Um, and I said to my parents, you know, I want to be an actor. I'd see... Mickey Rooney and uh, uh, Shirley Temple and Freddie Bartholomew on the silver screen, and I wanted to be like them. And so uh, I said to my father, why can't I go to Ada Foster, which was the uh, famous uh, children's school, which was fairly local, Golders Green, just down the, the road, uh, uh, just down the northern line here. And uh, he said, no, no, I think you should um, take your school certificate, matriculation, Gosh, that dates me, and my, your higher school certificate. And if you do that, then it, it, uh, your mother and I will back you in any way you want when you uh, when you want to become an actor. So I dutifully did my school certificate and my matriculation and my higher schools, and there it was. I got them, and have I said I still want to be an actor, and that's how it all began. Next up. Frank shares his memories of working at the Gateway Theatre, his first professional engagement. I seem to remember that my parents had to pay £30 for me to go there, uh, which was repaid to me at the rate of um, £2 a week, I think, which was a reasonable amount of money in those days. And to my surprise, when I had exhausted my 15 weeks and therefore um, got back the entire £30, they asked me to stay on I think they even put it up to three pounds a week. So I was there for quite a while. Um, my my main duties were stage management, but I did get the chance to play the occasional small parts. Um, stage management sounds very grand, but actually it was uh, things like making the tea at rehearsal and uh, helping to put the set up, going out to get the props and the furniture, etc., etc., etc. Uh, one of my duties was to run the uh, sound system, which in those days, of course, was quite different from nowadays. No tape, no CDs, just the old 78 revolutions a minute records. And we used to play music as people came into the theatre. 
And, of course, you had to change the record every three or four minutes. So we had two turntables, and you'd go as one record ran out and put the needle on the other turntable, and so on. And then, when the play was about to start, in those days, we played the national anthem, God Save the King, as it was then, and all the people stood up, and, uh, and then uh, they settled down, the play started. And so that was all part of my job. Uh, which went very well until one day, I think I was probably in a bit of a panic. I was in the dressing room making up for a part in the play, and I realised uh, the last bit of music was coming to an end. It was time for the national anthem. So I dashed to the corner, ra I grabbed the record, which was National Anthems of All the Nations, and of course, God Save the King was uh, the first one, and uh, I put the needle on, and out came the Marseillaise, because I'd got the wrong side of the record. And, of course, all the audience stood up dutifully and looked around for the French ambassador. So I, I left it down. I thought, well, I'll let it play and uh, I'd never be any the wiser. And my only great memory of, uh, of running the sound department there was uh, we, had a, we had an author who used to write a lot of historical plays. And uh, he wrote in one play, an actress had to say, Hark, I hear a distant trumpet. Well, I went through all the uh, records that we got, and we got fanfares and all sorts of things like that. And I said to the uh, stage director, I can't find anything with a single trumpet call, but that, because that's what we need. And he said, oh, now, don't worry, Frank. We've had this before. We've got the Leonora Number 3 Overture, and there is a solo trumpet call in the middle of that. And it's marked with a yellow line. And all you have to do is put the needle on the yellow line, and out would come this... Uh, uh, a single trumpet call, and I thought, well, it's a bit dicey, but okay. And indeed, it worked. Night after night, she said, Hark, I hear a distant trumpet, and out came the single trumpet call. Until the, uh, the other night, when I, I, I got in a bit of a panic, and uh, she said, Hark, I hear a distant trumpet, and I brought in the entire Halley Orchestra. But basically, I think I wasn't bad as a stage manager. I remember the uh, stage designer saying to me, well, I can always rely on you, Frank. The set will look the same uh, as I've designed it on the last night, just as it did on the first, because you're very meticulous about getting all the props and furniture, etc., in the right place. And so there you are. I mean, my very first uh, appearance on the professional stage as an ant and a snail. I don't think many professional actors can claim that, but I can. I've made my debut as an ant and a snail. And another thing I noticed in this programme, which is rather interesting, the name Elizabeth Smith. Now, of course, a very famous uh, character actress, and she played Mrs. Beetle, but she was also on the stage management team, which leads me to think she was probably a student assistant stage manager, just, just as I was. So there we are. In this section, Frank talks about his love of cinema and early in his career doing some extra work on feature films. As a child, of course, I was an avid cinema goer, as people were in my day. I used to go, I used to go to the pictures any time I could. Loved the films of Errol Flynn and so on as a small boy, and then got a bit more sophisticated, got into uh, Greer Garson and Betty Davis and, and the great Hollywood weepies. But of course, as an actor, um, film at that time was my goal. I really wanted to become a film actor. And so I decided one of the things I ought to do was to learn a bit about what it was like to be in a film studio. And in those days, they were making a lot of big Hollywood epics and so on. And so I uh, decided to do some film extra work. Um, and it was quite extraordinary, really. I mean, most 
marvellous set of people, a, a real cross-section of everybody from uh, old Etonians uh, to people who'd just been let out of prison, I think. I mean, a whole lot. And it was a fascinating group of people and a wonderful group of people. Um, I can remember working on Ivanhoe, which was one of the great epics at that time. And uh, uh, for some week, uh, for some days, I was uh, defending the castle. Other days, I was attacking the castle in a different uniform. I remember I had to uh, fire a bow and arrow uh, at the castle. Um, it was an enormous crowd scene, so I, I unfortunately it didn't really show because all my arrow would ever do is just go into the into the uh, row in front. And then when we were defending the castle, I mean, the arrows were coming and uh, and uh, the director said, well, now, as the arrows come, some of you will fall down dead. Well, an old hand among the uh, extras said to me, the thing is, fall down dead at the beginning, you can f spend the rest of the day just lying around on the ground. So I did, and as everybody else did. So he kept saying, no, some of you are going to go out and stay alive. Come on, come on. And so eventually we were told who could die and who wasn't to die. But it was, it was a fascinating thing. Um, and I did extra work on a lot of films. And then I, I gradually realised that um, if you were going to be a film extra, you were liable to remain a film extra. So I decided, sadly, that I had to give that up. And I, I think the thing that actually um, made me see this was when I was actually featured as an extra in, a, in the life of Gilbert and Sullivan with uh, Robert Morley and Morris Evans, I think, and I played one of six angry men who work out of a uh, uh, out of uh, Sir Arthur Sullivan's study because they're furious that he's writing all these comic operas instead of his oratorio. And you can actually identify me in that film. And I thought, well, now the time has come to um, give up being a film actor if you want to be a proper actor on film. Of course, I did eventually get into films properly as a, a, as a proper actor. Um, my very first film was, interestingly, because, you know, I've always been a committed churchman and so on, was for the uh, Arthur Rank Religious Film Foundation. It was a film called Shield of Faith, and uh, it was about the uh, the death of the... Um, uh, of a football team. I can't remember the actual plot of the film, but my bit was a flashback where the Padre, played by Mervyn Johns, remembers back to uh, a dying soldier in, in the First World War. And I was a dying soldier. And so that was my very first, um, first um, film. My first proper film, as it were, uh, was a film called The Extra Day. And um, it starred Brian Forbes. I remember having scenes with Brian Forbes Dennis Lotus was also in it. Um, I don't know whether it's uh, still... Well, I think it is still around. I think it's been on television once, right? But I played a technician of some kind, an assistant cameraman, I think I was, or, or something. And so that was my uh, my proper film debut, as it were. And I went on to do a lot of other films. I did a, a number of films with Norman Wisdom. I did one with um, Frank Finlay called Robbery, uh, where which we shot in... Um, Kilmainham Jail in Ireland because it was no longer wasn't in use at that time, so we were able to film there. Well, one of the things, of course, you never realise is how something you do which doesn't seem to be tremendously important is going to mean something important later, like meeting Jimmy Perry at Watford and, uh, and uh, Dad's Army. Um, I did a single episode 
of um, a, a television series, and they decided to make it into a B, not a big feature film, but into a feature film. And in order to get the atmosphere of it, they were showing this first episode, it's called The Larkins, this first episode to uh, various people, and it was the episode in which I appeared. And so uh, they cast me in this film, and I had a very nice time doing that. And they're very clever on that film because they, they got a number of well-known character actors down to do a single day, but, you know, quite a substantial part. So we had Irene Handel, we had Willoughby Goddard, and we had the wonderful, incomparable A. Matthews, who was, I don't know, 90 or something at the time. And I mean, he really was absolutely splendid because uh, uh, A, we, there was a hunt scene, and I, I don't ride, but, you know, they put me on a horse. And I mean, I'm terribly ashamed because I couldn't get my horse to do anything. But A. Matthews was absolutely splendid. I mean, he just led off and my horse dutifully followed, but... Uh, um, the, but Ellie Matthews was very crafty. I, I always remember this. Um, we were on a daily rate. We'd been paid by the day. And uh, he was, uh, we'd come to the end of A.E. Matthews' day, and um, he kept sort of having problems with his lines and, um, and fluffing them and getting them wrong. And in the end, we got to the end of the day's filming, and the director said, we've only got this one shot to do. Can I have a quarter of an hour, he asked the, the crew. And... Uh, um, so they said yes, and so we had this extra quarter of an hour, and dear old A. Matthews continued to get the lines wrong, which was very odd, because he'd been absolutely marvellous all through the day. And we all thought, oh, tired old boy, well, perhaps, you know, that's it. And the director said, oh, all right, sorry, you'll all have to come back tomorrow. And A. Matthews took me on one side, and he said, there you are, because it's an extra day's work, haven't I? Very good. <laughs> and in this section, Frank talks about some of his earliest television work. Because there was only the BBC in those days. I mean, there were, there were no rivals, just the one channel. And uh, they always wrote back and say, we do have an auditioning process here at the BBC. So I dutifully went and did the audition. Not that I thought it would ever do me any good, because I don't think it ever did. But at least then I could write and say when I wrote, I have already done the auditioning thing, so they couldn't palm me off with that. Eventually my uh, letters paid off, and I... I did, um, my very first one was a drama documentary about uh, young people going through their first six weeks of national service. And I played the sort of country bumpkin who got absolutely everything wrong. And I was the total despair of the drill sergeant from Aldershot who was brought down to, to drillers. He kept saying, you're a horrible little man, Williams. And I kept saying, I meant to get it wrong, I meant to get it wrong. So that was my defence. I suppose... Then I played a succession of things I was in. I can't quite remember how the order of this happened, but I know over my career I was in Z Cars, No Hiding Place, Emergency Ward 10. Emergency Ward 10 was interesting. I, I hovered between life and death in Emergency Ward 10 for six weeks. Very different from, the, uh, from Holby City and Casualty, where they show you every close-up of a, a wound and a, an operation. I sat at home, although it was live television, going out live, I sat at home and watched my own operation. Because in those days, you didn't see the patient being operated. I just saw the doctors looking down saying, oh yes, I think you'll pull through and all that sort of thing. So I sat at home and watched my own operation. Immediately after the Army game, I did um, a, uh, 
uh, a play for wonderful, one of the great television directors for whom I'd worked quite a lot before the army game, uh, Rudolf Cartier. And I did Anna Karenina with very starry cast, actually. Uh, the young Sean Connery before he became 007 and Claire Bloom. So uh, that was great. And I do remember, one of the things I remember, this is how primitive television was in those days. Um, I had to dance with Claire Bloom. It was a ballroom scene. And I had a line to her, like a dream you float, dear lady. Um, I had to say, and I remember Rudolf Cartier saying that, Frank, you must get under the chandelier when you say that line, because that's where the microphone is hidden. So that's how primitive it was. In this section, Frank recalls his first episode of Dad's Army. It was called The Armoured Might of Corporal Jones. And it, it had a lot of interesting things about it, that episode. It was the first episode of the third series. It was the first appearance of uh, Pamela Cundell as Mrs Fox. It was the first episode in which Jones's van appeared as the uh, platoon um, armoured vehicle, as it were. And at the end, there is a very nice little cameo from a, y- a young actor, fairly well, uh, very well known now, uh, but uh, not really well known then, called Nigel Hawthorne. So it's really quite a, a, an important episode, quite apart from the fact that it was my first one. In 1971, Frank starred in the Dad's Army feature film, and here are some memories about that production. And of course, uh, we didn't only do uh, Dad's Army on television, we did a feature film um, where actually Chalford St Giles stood in for Warmington on Sea, Um, whereas in the television series it had always been in Norfolk, but uh, Chalford St Giles was Warmington on Sea, and I remember... The very first day I was on location filming there, car picked me up and took me to Chalfont St. Giles. I got there tremendously early. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll have a wander around the village. And I'm wandering around and thinking, oh, well, yes, this is a very well-chosen location. It hasn't changed since the war. Look at those advertisements in the in the shop windows. And, oh, my goodness, there's a there's an investment from uh, uh, Craven A, which I remember from wartime. Uh, and then it suddenly, when I saw in the middle of this very inland uh, town, uh, a little notice saying, to the sea, with an up um, rowing boat, that in point of fact, of course, it had all been got ready for the film anyway. Um, but, uh, I mean, it was a, a fascinating uh, piece of nostalgia, that, watching the old walls uh, stop me and buy one ice cream uh, tricycle coming down and sort of thinking, gosh, I remember that when I was a boy and all that. So it, it was fascinating, of course. Uh, when we were there, somebody had to go round and take down all the television aerials um, that were that might get into shot because, of course, they wouldn't be right for the water. And, and then I think he used to go round and put them up every evening, so presumably they could uh, watch Dad's Army on television when they came home. Between 1975 and 76, Frank starred in the Dad's Army stage show, and here are some memories of his year on that production. Of course, one of the highlights of doing the stage show was that we actually got to appear in the Royal Variety performance that year. Uh, we we had um, a sequence in it where they sang the floral dance, which was quite well known. I think it's in on uh, some of the DVDs and things like that. But um, it was a wonderful sequence, and we did that at the Royal Variety. Uh, it was a wonderful lineup. I can remember Vera Lynn and Harry Steakham. Um, oh. 
whole lot of people. KwaZulu dancers, I remember. Yeah, and uh, I, I, it was a, it was a, it was a great a, a great night. And of course, at the end, bonus, we got to pre- we were presented to the Queen, which great honour. And as I mentioned earlier, Frank was also a playwright, and here's the great man himself talking about his love of writing. Of course, I've always also enjoyed writing. Even as a boy, I used to uh, sit and scribble. Uh, and, and there were always plays inspired by uh, by films I'd seen. Usually, I think I I remember um, dragooning all my friends into performing the plays that I'd written. I remember writing one based on the life of Handel because I'd seen the film The Great Mister Handel, starring Wilfred Lawson. Um, another one was based on the Scarlet Pimpernel because I'd seen the Leslie Howard Merleau-Perron version of that, uh, and so on. So uh, so writing writing plays was always part of my life. Um, I I did my play No Traveller at the Gateway, and a couple of plays were done at Watford, but I I continued to write after that. Murder by Appointment uh, was done, first of all, it opened at the lovely little Georgian theatre in Bury St Edmunds. Uh, It began its tour there. It starred uh, Margaret Ashcroft and Nigel Rathbone, both of whom were well-known on television at the time. Two plays which I've written which have never been done are The Boating Lake. It's not quite true to say it's never been done. We did do a rehearsed reading at at the Theatre Museum some years ago, but it's never been actually performed. Um, And another play... Uh, which began life as a one-act play, which I wrote for my church's local amateur drama group, and um, uh, I decided to expand it into a three-act play. Uh, It's called Two Children on a Seesaw, and the central character is a very elderly, eccentric lady who um, forms a friendship with the young man who lives in the flat below, and it's um, how... The friendship with with the young man actually helps her to uh, fulfil her life in a way that uh, she, from being a sort of rather eccentric recluse, um, and uh, uh, the young man, his story is also told. So that's a, that's a play a number of people who've read it are really very fond of. So I'm hoping one day somebody will do that. And I still continue to write a bit, or still continue at least to try and get people to do the plays that I've written that haven't yet been done, and they're one or two of those as well. In this section, Frank talks about his faith, his religion, and serving on the General Synod of the Church of England. I was brought up in a in a home uh, where my parents were churchgoers. I sang in a church choir. I was uh, I was um, confirmed while I was away at school, and I've been a sort of practicing church girl all my life. And I have to say, it's it's obviously an important part of my life, probably the most important part of my life. I've been on various councils and things like that, and uh, I was on the the General Synod of the Church of England for uh, 15 years. And so I served five years, stood again, and uh, and, uh, I think... um, uh, did reasonably well again that time, and then I stood for a third term, third five years, and uh, I think I actually uh, came first that time. So I, I, I but I, I'm just very interested to be on the General Synod. It's a fascinating body. It's um, it, some people call it the Church's Parliament. I, 
I don't think it is quite that, but a lot of people have said that uh, the standard of debate which takes place in Church House, Westminster, is rather higher than the standard of place that takes place across the road uh, in the House of Commons, but uh, be that as it may. But one of the things about the Church of England's General Synod is that uh, it's in three houses. You have the House of Bishop, the House of Clergy, and the House of Laity. And within the House of Laity, you have the most extraordinary mixture of people because people come from all walks of life. And so any subject that comes up, you're almost certain somewhere among the laity to have somebody who knows precisely what they're talking about. I mean, you've got you've got doctors, you've got farmers, you've got an actor, and uh, you've got all sorts of people who can bring expertise to all sorts of debates. And I found it a very, very fascinating uh, 15 years. I hope you've enjoyed those little snippets. There was so much to Frank's life. He did write his biography with Chris Gidney, which was called Vicar to Dad's Army. That was published in 2002, and I can highly recommend it. Once again, thank you, George Fairbrother, for all your support. And I hope you and your listeners have enjoyed those uh, bonus little nuggets from the great man himself. I hope this podcast finds you all happy and well. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Crocker. If anyone's enjoyed this, I'd love to hear from you. I'm always happy to talk about Frank. What a lovely man. I miss him. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. So once again, huge thanks to Oliver for putting that wonderful segment together for us. And yes, it certainly was a very happy surprise when I heard it for the first time to actually hear Frank Williams himself. And so thank you, Oliver, for sharing that from your personal archive. Um, Thank you for your trust and your generosity. And we also send our very warmest best wishes to Mr. Ronnie Grange. Now, we know Frank Williams looked back very fondly on his time with Dad's Army, and we know that the cast as a whole were a happy ensemble, and it was a joyous reunion every year when they met up in Thetford for location work. I'd like just to mention Edward Sinclair in particular. He played the verger, Mr Yateman. And not only were Frank Williams and Edward Sinclair a wonderful comedic double act on screen, they were great friends off screen. And in fact, they were set to appear together in a stage production of Cinderella as the Ugly Sisters in 1977. But Edward Sinclair sadly passed away just a few weeks after completing the final episode of Dad's Army, aged just 63. In Bill Pertwee's memoir, Dad's Army, The Making of a Television Legend, he really paints an endearing picture of their friendship in action. He writes, Ted and Frank Williams became a great team in the production and their friendship spread to their offstage activities. They would drive to filming locations together in Ted's car and he would accommodate Frank's collection of books, a very heavy and almost antique video recorder and suitcases full of clothes which would leave Ted little room for his own belongings. One day I passed them driving up the A1 en route to a filming session. They were doing about 25 miles an hour. Frank was trying to read a huge map that seemed to envelop them both while at the same time he was talking non-stop to Teddy. Bill Pertwee went on to write that it was the perfect working combination and always done with great good humour. Have you heard the scandal about Fraser, the undertaker? Is there a woman involved? Be quiet, Teddy. You shouldn't listen to gossip. What's he done? You care for a drink, Verger? It's my round. That's very civil of you, sir. Make it a lemonade shandy. Not too much beer, Shirley. Mustn't forget it's the Lord's Day. Oh, the Lord's Day, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Vicar? Oh, how very kind. I'll have a double scotch, please. <laughs>
Now, I'd just like to play a brief edited clip from our previous episode. Oliver alluded to this during his segment. We recorded it in 2021, and Oliver shares a couple of favourite Frank Williams moments. And we also learn about something very special that happened behind the scenes during the filming of the 2016 feature film. And then I'll be back with some final thoughts. Do you have a particular favourite Frank Williams moment as the vicar? Yeah, uh, it's when the, um, is it the French ambassador? And Frank leans in to get a kiss. He does. <laughs> I, th- I think that's Frank's biggest. Yes. I think that's the biggest laugh he gets. Uh, yeah. uh, b- but yeah. because it's location, <laughs> it kind of gets swept away from the timing of the location yeah. insert. But yeah. it's a massive laugh. I mean, one of my favourite Frank roles is actually Frank did an episode of Bergerac where he was. Uh, and the funny thing is, Frank grew a beard in 1983 to try and get different kind of roles. And Frank went off to do one scene as like a librarian with John Nettles. And and they realise, Bergerac realises that a page has been torn out. Some vital evidence has been torn out. And Frank, this librarian, gets the closing gag where he slams the book closed. He goes, well, that really is very naughty. <laughs> and that's that's one of my favourites of for, for Frank. Yes. I, I I love that. Really, is very naughty. Um, that sort of um, tetchy tetchy delivery that Frank does so well, so clips. And- that's him, isn't it? It's interesting. In two thousand and sixteen, when they did the movie, yes, and he just had the brief cameo as the vicar. I was talking to him while he was doing that. When he arrived at that location, the entire cast and crew. Gave him a standing ovation as he walked in. Oh, did they? Wonderful. Which That's is wonderful. just yeah. send shivers. Because I, I did the special features for that movie. And I got sent all of the uh, behind-the-scenes footage. And I made two little featurettes. One was called Legacy and The Women of Warmington. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Because they all stayed in the same hotel in Beverly, the Beverly Arms, I think. And Catherine Zeta-Jones was like coming up to Frank like fangirling about meeting the vicar from wow. Dan's army. Yeah. You know, oh, and, 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 and um, Ronnie took a photo of Frank in his costume in the pub before, because they had like closed sets and things like that. And Frank just looks 10 years old. The happiness at being back. And you can find the complete episode in conversation with Oliver Crockett part two on our podcast platforms and also our website, deck4podcast.com. We talk more about Frank Williams, his fellow Dad's Army cast members, and lots more as well. Each episode has a special page on the website with some additional background images and links and some suggestions for further viewing, reading, and listening. It was fascinating to learn about a couple of the uncommissioned pilots, and I guess every actor's career is beset by thoughts of, you know, if only and uh, what might have been. Um, Oliver mentioned last time we spoke that um, Frank Williams was surprisingly never offered a guest role in Are You Being Served, despite very much being part of David Croft's unofficial stock company, and that is something that he really would have loved to have done. He did, of course, appear as the Bishop in 14 of 26 episodes of Croft and Perry's You Rang My Lord from 1990 to 93, but I think um, perhaps one that got away, he would have made a delightful contribution to the village of Hatley in David Croft's final sitcom that was commissioned for the BBC, Oh Dr Beeching. Now, if you happen to be checking out some of the additional background on our website, while you're there, if you head to our community page, uh, you'll find links to Oliver's work, including his books on The Bill and All Creatures Great and Small, The Bill Podcast, and the scripted audio series Letter from Helvetica. 
that Oliver is producing. It's written by and starring Andrew McIntosh and also starring Natalie Rolls. Between them, they were in over 500 episodes of the legendary ITV police drama The Bill. And if you enjoy audio content in the tradition of some of the great BBC radio dramas and comedies, I think you'll really enjoy Letter from Helvetica. It's a thrill to be just one of many supporters of this great project. It's been getting some great reviews and can be found on the major podcasting platforms. You can also catch Natalie Rolls hosting The Bill Podcast. Now we're making use of a couple of brief Dad's Army clips. We do take some external guidance on the fair use of copyrighted material and some background on this can also be found at our website. Thank you, Oliver. It's been a real privilege to put this episode together with your help. And thanks to Steve Collins for tech support and to Gainesville for our original music. And I do hope you've enjoyed our tribute to Frank Williams. Thank you for listening. Hey, Arbica, look at that mouth-watering, isn't it? Oh, a rare sight indeed, Mr. Hodges. Do you know, I don't think I've seen an orange for oh, over two years. If my memory serves me right, Your Reverence, it was just before the war in the Scouts' production of Good King Charles. You played Nell Gwynn. Ah, happy days. Oh, it's you, Verger. Oh, you are a beastly nuisance. How dare you come in here like this and wake me up?